Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Kia ora, talofa lava, maloa lele, bula, hello and welcome. We're really excited to be launching this new podcast series, so thank you very much for joining us. So we kick off with an episode that really captures what we want the series to interrogate. How can aid agencies, governments, businesses and the public be most useful? And how do we get better at trusting locals to lead? In other words, how can we be useful outsiders? In this episode, we look at the recent volcano eruption and tsunami that hit the Kingdom of Tonga. The speakers discuss the initial response, how recovery efforts are going, and they draw out some lessons learned for the role of New Zealand in the Pacific. Josie Pagani is joined by Finau Leveni, Head of International Programs at Caritas, Melino Maka, a well-known leader in the Tongan community, and Peter Farfew, Vice Chair of Global Amnesty International and co-founder of consultancy Navigator New Zealand. You can find out more about the speakers in the episode notes. We hope you enjoy listening. So the Tongan disaster has really been about responding to three events, hasn't it? The volcanic eruption, the tsunami, and now COVID and lockdown. Fina, how different has it, this response been compared to other responses that we've done in the Pacific? Well, thank you, um, Josie. Uh, it's a great question because what we've seen now is um, a quite complex uh, disaster because we've had two huge natural disasters or unnatural disasters and then followed by, by COVID. And so absolutely this is something that... Um, that we're starting to see more of these much more complex um, one kind of merging into another. But what makes us really, really interesting is the contactless response that was requested by the government of Tonga, primarily to keep COVID out of their out of their country. So I think what we're seeing is definitely the shift to much more complex responses that we've not seen before. What, what, in your experience, Milena, because you've been organising the local Tongan response, mostly up in Auckland, but getting a number of containers over, um, you know, how's that experience been from your point of view? How hard has it been dealing with three disasters, really? May I add, this this is going to be fourth, is is, uh, on the way, because we're in the middle of the cyclone season. There's two two, uh, cyclones actually on, on... on both sides of Tonga, you know, it's so if that if that there's government will make a, a even a more complex, you know. But um, for me, I've been involved about 30 years in in uh, disaster relief, and this is the biggest, you know, biggest and complex. Because um, I remember talking to Sir Michael Jones, and he said to me the the success of disaster uh, relief, you have to do everything on a run, you know. Because if you sit down and, and discuss it in the committee, you, you know, the whole thing was, you know, was stalled and, and become uh, broke down. You know, and I believe that. And some of the success we, we, we had in the past is just everything. We, we have instinct and we have, we have a local knowledge of what's the needs in Tonga. And we just focus on the short-term uh, relief. And I think that's, that's the success of the... Of, of the, the Tongan relief. And it's a model, it's been looked at. Uh, I have about uh, two or three uh, organizations, they want to do a research paper on it. And, and I think it's just, 
I can see the the paradigm on on a uh, on a disaster relief. It's changed. We had a visit from the European uh, Commissioner, and we had a discuss with them in, in our at our uh, Hope Town. Hope Town is we name this part of uh, Mount Smart. It's um, you know it's Hope Town, and then it's it's it sticks on everybody talk about hope them. so but but by far the, the biggest um disaster we have the stuff that we now talk about and 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 the potential cyclone we saw in the middle of cyclone season so we'll come back to the the different ways in which new zealanders and new zealand communities have responded because it is it's a really interesting model compared with you know the on the one hand sending containers on the other hand sending cash and how that's worked because mm-hmm. it's a really Good conversation, but um, Peter, I mean, you, you've you know lived through many cyclones and various emergencies in the Pacific yourself, whether in Samoa or elsewhere. Now, of course, you're in New Zealand, but you know what? What? How does this? How does this compare in your mind? And and how resilient? I mean, it's amazing how resilient Pacific communities are. We've only had four fatalities, which is incredible, given given the, the, this kind of disaster in Tonga. So Pacific Resilience has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years before the aid agency got involved. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's the story of, of, of the Tongan response, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not only resilience, but also the ability to move at pace. I think, you know, in complex uh, disasters and, and, and situations, it's, it's actually not the disaster, but the response to it. So I think the Tongan response has been tailored I think when he talked about principles, I think Molino and Finau touched on it. You know, it's partnership, it's partnership with private sector, with government, with community. I, I, I like, as Molino said, uh, you know, the Auckland response and that it was community led. Um, um, you know, so you take the passion and the, um, you know, uh, for your homeland, but at the same time, undertaken in a very structured way um, and you had to move at pace. Um, I think uh, I think another uh, thing was it's unique, right? I mean, I mean, both Melino and Fina have touched on the four sort of key elements uh, or situations occurring at the moment in, in Tonga, and, and it's unique to Tonga. So, you know, and so each crisis is unique, each country response needs to be unique. The question I have is whether the government, uh, um, not just our government, but governments in terms of the apparatus, are they quick enough and, and, and are they flexible enough to adapt and to tailor their responses to the, um, as people have said, complex situations on the ground that's a that's a big question mark and, and Melino's right there should should be some research around this and lessons learned um but that's the big question mark for for me um on this is how has the government apparatus responded to the pace and the complexity of the situation and have they been a good partner i mean you know we we i can tell you that community private sector you know and and and, and organizations like caritas have been good partners but has government been a good partner? Uh, and, that's a, and that's a question, you know, that should be asked. I would love to jump in. <laughs> um, and, and that's exactly what um, uh, I think Peter hit the, the nail on the head, really, is, is how, uh, how are we adapting as, as outside of the country to what's happening in the country now? When the disaster happened and there was absolutely no communications and normally... You know, there would be boots on the ground, we would be sending, you know, flights and deploying, um, you know, all of these assets to, to hit the ground and all of that sort of stuff. When that wasn't happening, we literally panicked um, in the back of my mind, just because there was so many unknowns. And so what 
what I started doing was looking at what do we know. So having been involved with the government of Tonga, and not just the government, but the NGO sector, the private sector, the communities, in terms of um, ensuring that they had robust response mechanisms, I knew that they already had those, those things in place. And I knew that even though we could hear nothing from them, that those were kicking into gear as soon as um, the disaster was over. And, and it was exactly right. Red Cross, Caritas, Tonga were accessing their prepositioned stocks and were already um, meeting the needs on the ground. And in terms of how, how we are as a sector and how the government is also responding, I don't think we're fit for purpose. We're still using those same old models that were around, um, you know, how many years ago? And if you think about this DRP round that has just gone out um, through MFAT, is that really the best model? <laughs> because everyone in Tonga is in lockdown. The DRP is due on Wednesday and there is so much pressure from our side to our our um, counterparts on the ground to get this information so that we can put this DRP together, so et cetera, et cetera. Is this really the best time to be demanding that of our partners on the ground, A, when they're in lockdown, two, when they're in the middle of a crisis? Um, you know, we're still putting pressure on them to feed the machine, I guess, of our processes. And so I think we need to be reevaluating how we work and it needs to be high trust. And, and, the, and the way that I evaluate how we work is not by the statements that are put out by governments on their policies, it's by their funding models. You know, because um, policies have come out and they've changed, our funding models have not fundamentally changed at all. It is still, um, Caritas, for example, um, we are not taking up the DRP. We, uh, we've, um, we've managed to get enough funding from people who have, from our appeals. Um, and, and we are so pleased that we don't have to take that up. Um, just because of the burden, the administrative burden that that also places on our partners, that we can actually use the money that we've got from our incredibly generous donor base to support Caritas Tonga in a way that is not intrusive, not burdensome, not onerous, but in a way that is flexible and also um, adaptive to, to the changing needs as we can see unfolding right now when we speak. That's so interesting. And I think, um, yeah, for anyone listening who, who doesn't know what DRP is, this is the sort of emergency fund that foreign affairs decide to distribute in an emergency. And it's the whole point of it, it's meant to be very quick, goes out quickly, and aid agencies can respond. Um, but yeah, often what happens is it, it, it does get tied up in the due diligence and all the paperwork you've got to do. So I think that's a really interesting point that, you know, one of the things that COVID has done is it's 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 really created a sense of assertiveness and urgency from the Pacific. It's like the old models are not going to be fit for purpose. And in a situation like Tonga, I mean, Melino, you, I know, have you were you immediately got on the ground in the community. It was collect what needs to be done, sent in containers and so on. You know, being able to act really urgently is something that's very important to Tongan communities in New Zealand, to be able to do something practical, isn't it? And so, you know, that that was a very quick response on the ground from, from your networks. Yeah, exactly. But um, I just add on what Fina was saying, that um, it, it, uh, the need to change the attitude in, in, in the model for disaster relief is, is more urgent now than, than ever because we we start to see the evidence of it's not working and and there's been push and forced down the 
is those who are actually dependent on, on, uh, on government funding. But the reason why we, we actually mobilize our community so quickly, because we understand the local uh, environment, you know, we anticipate and, and exactly what we, um, um, we were planning out for. Before any, um, any assessment, we actually, because the, the, the Tongan model was based on short-term uh, relief. But, but, but what happened uh, right now is that COVID actually complicated the issues. You know? And um, we, had, we had some reports from when, when we were asking the government to get the, the Tongan Defense Force to involve in distribution, that was all right. And then when I heard that they, they changed their, their model, not as really frightened um, uh, us because with COVID, it starts spreading in, in, in Tonga. You know, it's, we don't want to end up the stuff that we send to Tonga. We actually, um, uh, as, as a, um, a super spreader for COVID. And that's, that's the thing that I, I get, I worry all the time. Not the stuff that we send, but what, the, you know, what, what going to create. It's al almost like a monster that we actually send within those, those uh, reliefs. And that's my, my biggest fear. And then I keep asking the, the New Zealand end to really wanted to get up there and help the, you know, the Tongan uh, Defence Force. For example, they, the Tongan Defence Force started and they tried to distribute, but they didn't actually give them the right, uh, the right uh, tool to do the, for example, they, they used the, the, the Tongan Defence Force big high, high end truck and those 44 gallon trucks they're quite heavy. And, and that's why they, they, that distribution was so, was so slow. And we, I thought that the government of Tonga would um, ask for the whole uh, truck with a higher, so they can lower the, the Trump. And, and, but now I, I received a, uh, the report, there's a huge queue on, from right down from Wuna Wolf, come out to Queen's Road Wolf. People are actually lining up, waiting for their, to go and collect their stuff. Sometimes I feel that we know that what we anticipate that we're helping them, we might create something else, you know? And, and, this, yeah. and that's the worrying part for me. And I think that's the problem, isn't it? That that um, in some ways, uh, and, and I and and it's very understandable that Tongan families in New Zealand want to send stuff to to families in Tonga, church to church. But but we also know as an aid sector that that sending cash to some of the local organisations that you mentioned, Finau, you know whether it's um, Red Cross Tonga, Caritas Tonga. But you know, or directly to to um, other local organisations that are partnering with aid agencies, that sending cash in the end is going to be best because people take the money, they can buy exactly what they need, they can they can support the local community. But it's interesting, and I think Peter, you could talk to this. I'm sure that you know a lot of Pacific communities we know in New Zealand don't necessarily. Um, have a, a tradition or, or even a relationship with the aid agencies. And so they're not necessarily going to suddenly send money to an aid agency in New Zealand. It is easier to do it through, um, through family and through church and so on. So how do you juggle the fact that people want to send stuff directly to family with also the fact that we know sending money to organisations locally you know, is, a, is the most effective way of support long-term, at least. Yeah, I mean, I would start with, um, again, have those government agencies got a relationship with the communities here, the diaspora communities here, and allow them to re-explain, because I say re-explain, not explain, because government agencies know this, 
we explain to them the tools of, of better engagement with their people. Um, and, you know, and top of mind, I mean, language is one, two, through the church leaders, three, uh, via the community groups that are well established, four, the ones who have connections to their homeland on the ground, five, the ones who have experience with crisis and disaster. I mean, that's top of mind, you know, and so, I mean, community groups, you know, through millennials, um, um, you know, gr groups and, and females groups, I mean, they've been telling this to officials for for years on end. Um, and then every time something, another crisis comes around, they, they get to establish another um, lessons learned paper. Um, we'll go up to a minister um, and there'll be a power graph in there. They've engaged with millennial and female and other community leaders until the next disaster, right? You know, I'm quite cynical about, about, about government processes. And as females said, it's not fit for purpose. Uh, um, and so, so that's, the, that's the high level um, um, aspect of that. The second thing is, I think people know know that. Um, I just I, I just believe again that they were it will it will stay with them when it's part of a talanoa, not part of a, a promotional piece of work. You know, um, and you know that Josie. You know, every time you have a talanoa with with a Pacific leader, you know it's going to take a couple of hours, but they certainly get the message right. And then and then and then after and then, and then after another couple of um, funnels, you know, they'll be able to spread that message um, around. So I think again, it's an element of communication. Um, that, that's that's lost, and again, it's not new. I, I also thought, I, I mean, I'm, because Melina touched on it, you know, MFAT um, and Fina touched on it. MFAT is an interesting one because I was in on a Zoom that um, that Minister um, Seal had called. I, I'll tell you this. Um, I, I, I tell you that this is this is quite an appalling, and I'll make sure this is, and I'm making sure this is public. He sends a, his his Ministry of Pacific Peoples people send an invite for a Zoom call for the Tongan community leaders at 4.30 p.m. for a 6 p.m. Zoom, right? And the fact that the Tongan Pacific leaders got on the Zoom is because their heart and their heads were speaking, not because of the they, they removed themselves from being disrespected, but they got on the call and they made time, took time away from their families and their communities to answer the call from a ministry and from a minister. That's disrespectful. In my, in my opinion, it is, right? And then the second element is when they got MFAT officials to explain, an MFAT official, a senior official MFAT said, this is the email and verbally articulated an email in which to make contact with them if they wanted to help, right? It's odd. I just find it really, really odd. And, 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 and it's just explains how the system is not fit for purpose and they've got a template to follow. But I just want to verbalize that publicly because... I'm not Tongan, and I, and I and I jumped on that call given my role as chair of Pacific Media Network, and I thought to myself, this is very disrespectful, and someone should apologise first and foremost after the prayer um, um, for giving an hour and a half's notice. But no one did, right? No one did because they took advantage of an emotional situation, um, um, you know, for these Pacific leaders to to make the call and and and, and get on that Zoom call when they were called. When they were called, right? They weren't asked; they were called. Right. So that's, you know, and so that's my bugbear and, and, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, maybe let's talk about some quick lessons learned, actually, and some really practical ones, too. I mean, uh, it, you know, Fina, you talked about how, um, you know, the model needs to change, the, 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 the bureaucracy, the kind of due diligence at the time of a crisis is just too burdensome. So what would we do differently? I really think we need to change our models to high trust models. We talk about it, but we actually don't do it. We talk about that we are doing it and we're going to do it and we just never do. 
the models remain the same. You know, like we package up the policies with lots of brilliant different wording about what we're going to do and how we're going to engage and all of these sorts of things, but on the ground, nothing changes. The system still remains the same. And for me, it really is about um, power sharing and being comfortable to cede power, which many of our agencies, our sector in general, really, they're not comfortable doing because otherwise they would have done it already. So, um, you know, like in 2015, I think it was, we had the, um, the, the World Humanitarian Summit. So we had the regional um, meeting in Auckland. We had Helen Clark fly in, you know, like, so all of the big UN people at the time, et cetera, we were supposed to reimagine aid and what it would look like. Um, I think it was a, a brilliant conference because it was really Pacific led. Out of it came really great concrete um, recommendations from our communities about you know what it is that they want to see in terms of aid etc cetera, etc cetera. that's gone nowhere since then and it reminds me of when the premier of new air he stood up and he said after all of the the really great beautiful flowery speeches from the un and from you know like he stood up and said look let's just cut to the chase we're here because i don't trust you you don't trust me you know and essentially that <laughs> that was it because if if we did trust each other um, our funding models would change, our whole relationships would change. Um, and so for, so for me, it, it really goes back to why are we doing the work that we that we do as a sector? It, it's almost like an existential <laughs> question back to our sector in terms of are you doing it to be a blessing? Um, for me, it's also the collision of perspectives, the collision of values. So if you've got a Western system, of course, you know, the values are highly tied up to value for money. Um, you know, are we getting the biggest bang for our buck, et cetera, and colliding with the Pacific value, which is really, you know, when I grew up with my mum and she was talking about being successful, money did not enter once at all. It, it was all about the kind of person, you know, like how can I benefit my community, all of those sorts of things. And when you've got two different worldviews kind of colliding when they come together, you know, there again is another um, another big issue that impacts actually the way that we work. Um, fundamentally for me, it really is about shifting power and, and how uncomfortable our aid agencies, our governments are at actually being able to do that. Because it starts to change the role of the aid sector completely, doesn't it? So we start, our role starts to be about building, strengthening local organisations, not about, you know, boots on the ground, not about fly in, fly out aid, um, and, and not about our priorities. No, no that, and that's exactly it, because um, I remember working, um, responding to Tropical Cyclone Pam, and, and walking into, in Vanuatu, walking into that, um, walking into that, that um, emergency operations center and just seeing, all I could see was brands, you know, because everybody was under pressure from their headquarters that were sitting in London, Geneva, you know, wherever they were, just saying, get that photo, get that photograph, get our brand recognition out there, boots on the ground, we're out there, we're helping people, blah, blah, blah. And I remember talking with the, um, the, the secretary um, at, at that time, and he said to me that he just didn't feel it was genuine. You know, people were there with their own agendas, not really to help him. They were there to get that, you know, that big money shot photograph of, you know, their brand 
delivering a box or delivering something or you know installing a, a water pipe or, or something like that um, and, and we had this huge talk around um, around branding and around people's need to be seen to be doing something to help and how that actually hindered a lot of the work because it just felt um, it just didn't feel genuine didn't feel real it felt um, ulterior motives all over the place and and how can you build trust <laughs> you know like when that is especially in, a, in an emergency disaster situation. Melino is this one of the problems about why it's so hard for the aid sector to get the message across to Pacific communities generally oh no send cash don't send stuff because there's a, a lack of trust. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think some of us, um, we, we're sick and tired of that message, you know. And, and often, um, I remember I, I, was, um, I was telling this, um, this Tongan uh, guy, he said, you donated for, the, for some of the Red Cross. And then he, he prompted the, the question to me and said to me, if I give you $500 to give to my, my family, is Red Cross going to deliver that? And I said to him, no, because it's called your consolidated fund. And then he said to me, you know, and then the answer is no, we'll, we'll do with uh, family to family. And I think for our community, that's why the family to family is so popular because it's more transparent. You know, even we have a few hiccups in terms of the DSO delivery and, and shipping and other stuff and administration, but they know when Wednesday the Trump is reached their, their far now at home, they open up and that's what, that's what really... Um, Touch them, you know, and, and that's that's why they trust it, their model, you know. And I, and I just just think that um, you know, often our community tend to rely heavily on the government, you know, to help them. But I just I learned my lesson is I would rather work with private sector. They're hmm. much more genuine, you know. What do you see? What do you get? You know, when they say yes, is yes. When they say no, is no. You know, dealing with the government, you can't get a, a boo out of them. You know, and then they. Every time the success of, of our uh, our effort, they try to claim it, you know, and and, and, and it's a disgrace, you know. For example, I'm I'm trying to get from um, uh, MPP, the Municipal Pacific People, getting to help um, coordinate the stuff from from uh, outside of Auckland, and they just they won't move, you know. And I think there's a it's a political uh, angle to it, but I I get frustrated because some of the stuff that that we, we're trying to, to bring to Auckland. It was genuinely uh, some of the outer islands that are affected by the, you know, in Harpaian. You know, it's, and then I have one phone call to, to the private sector and they 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 have the, uh, the logistic is challenged, but they say, yes, we'll do it, you know, mm. right, the whole country. I think it, it, it's a good, it's been a good model. I think one of the things that, that with the Tongan response, I think that the there's been an understanding that that family to family, church to church, people do want to send stuff on containers. There's also been pressure, you know, we, and we've certainly put pressure on um, banks, talking about private sector, to lower fees for remittances. So, you know, if you want to send cash through remittances, that might be a way that's more, that feels more um, direct than sending it through an aid agency. And then we've encouraged our, our aid agency members, like Caritas um, and others, to name exactly who their local partner is. 
is. So then you know if you're giving money to Caritas or Tear Fund or Oxfam or Save the Children that they have a they have a partner on the ground that people know. This is a this is a, a real authentic <laughs> Tongan organization. It's yeah, not something I, we've made yeah. up. You know. If you want to help your loved ones in the Pacific Islands after a disaster, these steps will help. One. Wait a month, sending anything immediately after a disaster can clog ports and hamper emergency efforts. Two, don't send food, even canned food. It will spoil in the heat and end up in the landfill. Three, check the government local needs list. Don't send anything that's not needed. Four, remittance is the most helpful thing you can do. Five, check the website donateresponsibly.org forward slash Pacifica for more info. Peter, you were, you were involved with with me and others uh, about sort of advising or, or, or um, feeding information and ideas back to ministers about the Pacific Reset. This was, of course, when Winston Peters was a minister. Now we've got the Pacific Resilience, building Pacific Resilience. So we've gone from reset to resilience. Thinking about all of these issues we've talked about, you know, and this isn't just about humanitarian responses, it's about long-term development too. What's the difference between a Pacific Reset and Pacific Resilience? Do you think? Yeah, I wish they would have a Pacific review, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an, I'm an experienced director of, you know, I've got two thousand seven hundred staff under my directorships, right? And so there's there's a, there's a need for you know having regular review at a governance level, um, at a director level. So it's it's again it's odd. I find, I still find it odd, you know, even though I started my career in in, in a government agency. The governments they like to establish new programs, you know, as if you know, as if you know, you know, because maybe it's maybe it's because of the three-year political cycle, or maybe it's because you know of the silo mentality that the Westminster system brings, or maybe it's the Anglo governance aspects of it, because you know our governance state is an Anglo governance state. It's not a it's it's not it's not a New Zealand one. So maybe all of that that every every year we get a new new something when actually we should just review and monitor the current programs and ensure that we have lessons learned and say so you're building on top. Private again, I'm in the private sector. Private sector do it every year, right? You know you have a you you have a long term vision. Every private sector do this very well. A fifty to a hundred year vision. You cut the fifty to hundred years into into um, sizable chunks, and then every year is an annual plan. You've got resources attached to it, you got the talent attached to it, and you measure every year. And then in a hundred years' time, it's the next generation because the the vision is still there. Um, and again, it, it's 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 not um, you know it's 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 hard, but it's workable. And again, because we're in a three-year political cycle, we've got this new Pacific resilience. Um, what that what that means, I. I know what the word resilience means. I mean, English is a second language to me, so uh, I, I certainly know what resilience means, but I don't know what it means from a government perspective to their partners in the Pacific, what this means. I, I mean, I love Mark Brown to explain to me. I love, you know, um, Sam One Prime Minister to explain to me, the Tongan Prime Minister. I love to hear them explain back what Pacific, New Zealand Pacific uh, resilient means to them, because that's what matters, isn't it? It's what it means to them. At the receiving end, not not the teller, right? You know, it's not the person that tells someone this is our policy and this is what you're going to do. It's at the receiving end, and so again, I I, I would wait for those leaders to respond rather than actually, and then I have a view on on Pacific resilience. Because to be honest with you, I mean, you know, this government, you know, every three years, New Zealand government will come up with some 
fancy phrase, and I can probably give you three or four options for the next one. You know, um, you know, Pacific. Let's have a Pacific Idol. Uh, I mean, you know, while we're at it, I mean, you know, let's just name me. You know, name anything under the sun, and and then, you know, so I'll wait for the Pacific leaders in the region to respond, and then and then probably that's worth a conversation. Yeah, in our um, annual conference that we had just the end of last year, so we had Prime Minister Fiamme, Prime Minister Mark Brown, and they, yeah, they didn't mention any of the UN jargon at all, any of the development jargon. They said very clearly, this is what it means to us. It means use country systems, listen to our priorities, get business, civil society around the table as well, um, and listen. And, and, you know, it's kind of, it's not rocket science, is it? <laughs> Fina, do you do you have a view on the difference between Pacific Reset and Pacific Resilience? Or um, I I'm, I have no idea what it means. Um, these two government um, policies, um, and you know that could be because I've been out of the country for a long time. And um, but I I do like for me I'm exactly like like Peter. Uh, what does that mean to and not just people in the Pacific, but also what does it mean to the Pacific diaspora here? Does anyone actually have an idea about how they want our New Zealand government to be supported, you know, and, and how do they feel? Do they feel that this is actually reflective of what the Pacific communities here, um, how they want to be seeing and shaping support to Pacific countries, you know, back home? Um, so those would be absolutely my questions. I, I just think in terms of, um, policies and the names for them and, and things like that you know I wish someone would write a policy about how we can get out of the way of you know like how we can support countries in a way that then makes us give them support and then get out of the way and just kind of let them get on with it I think this the way that we support is still heavily um, influenced by you know the colonial system that we are, are still very much impacted by and I would really love to see the day that we have a policy that really actually supports Pacific, um, our Pacific neighbours, the way they want to be supported. You've just summed up exactly what this podcast series is about, Fina, which is about how do we be useful outsiders? And, and the opposite of that is a, a useless insider. In other words, you know, <laughs> driving it from our point of view rather than being a useful outsider. I, I wonder, Melino, you know, COVID has been a real challenge for, for a lot of people in the Pacific and of course in New Zealand. But one thing we've noticed over the last two years is that the voice from our Pacific partners is far more assertive than it, than it was before COVID. And that's a really good thing. So as I just mentioned, Prime Minister uh, Fiamme and Prime Minister Mark Brown, very clear about, mm -hmm. about what, what their message mm -hmm. is. So have you found that too? Have you found that during COVID, mm -hmm. It's it's a the, the the Pacific voice is far more ready to stand up and be assertive about what their needs are. We've always been there. We've always been there, but yeah. we've been ignored. You know? And um, I give you an example that um, you know during the COVID um, last year here in New Zealand, the Pacific was ignored as some of the solution that has uh, come within our own Pacific uh, church leaders, some Pacific community leaders ignore. And when the the government was actually pushed against the wall. All of a sudden, they found a new, new, new partner, you know, Pacific uh, community, and then, and then the, the solution was there, you know. But it's just, um, you know, I, I found it's, it's, you know, the hypocrisy is around this, you know, talk about these those fancy words that we talk about the resilience. You know? 
They, I'm, I'm sure that they they don't even they don't even know what it means for Pacific and and the other stuff that I think is is missing. Um, I don't know where uh, Peter can comment on it. You know the the the, the development of of Pacific uh, leadership within foreign affairs to come through the ring, because you you um, I often talk to the you know the, the deputy secretary and they uh, purely come from a, a Palangi perspective and they pretend that they know about the Pacific, but most of the time we can actually see right straight through them. You know? And and but because they rely on a lower uh, ranking uh, Pacific people in in, in uh, ministry. That, that it's very difficult for them to push through some of the, the Pacific perspective or, or educate them about how how to frame policy that, that, that benefit the Pacific rather than they just dish it out. Mm. Mm. Yeah, again, I mean, I'll, I'll take a customer-focused uh, perspective on that, right, from a private sector. So if your customer is, is, is looks like this, talks like this, and, 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 and provides you, you know, a, a return on your service, you know, in this way, Right, organizations and companies often will adapt. So, if two thirds, or I don't know what it is, of your aid development is going to the Pacific, and you don't look like them, you don't feel like them, you don't talk like them, it, it, it's poor customer service, right? It's 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 your as Finau said, it's typical sort of you know system that came through the colonial system. So again, my way is not it's not, it's not the only way. There's probably plenty of other options. So the question for Infat is. Do they have the talent in-house to reflect the customer that they're serving, right? And the customer and the majority of the customer they're serving is in the Pacific. So what it looks like from a HR perspective is up to them. I mean, you know, whether it be people of Pacific descent or people of um, Pacific talent um, or experiences, it's up to them. But I don't think they've passed the first question, which is, is it reflective of the customer base of which the New Zealand government, um, you know, with the majority is Pacific? And, and, and I don't think they've answered that question. And I don't think they want to answer that question because if you answer that question and you responded to it, then it'll quickly get to Molino's point, which is there was very good talent in that system, but also of Pacific descent, but also very good talent who left to go on to other, um, to, into the private sector or to other government departments. And funnily enough, they get to deputy chief executive of other government departments, right? Mm. So it's not a talent issue. Right? It's, it's, it's certainly not a skill set, experience, talent issue. Um, so what's the issue? Uh, um, it's a systematic, uh, um, um, it's a systems issue. So, um, and also I'll step back a little bit from, from earlier comment, you know, in terms of the resilience part of it, I, 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 value, I value policy that comes to fruition, which is backed up by an implementation plan. Right. So and and I and again, that's my criticism of it. That, that, that you know, I was a bit harsh before. You know, every government comes up with a new, you know, Pacific something. But it's because there's no plan. There's no implementation plan. And again, Nanai Mahuta's speech on Pacific resilience was all about values. We get that, right? I mean, I mean, we've had the conversation about values for many, many, many decades, right? I mean, half of the you know half of, you know the Pacific was colonized by Australia, New Zealand. So you know. Um, um, we, get, we get that conversation around the people, the people, but how do you move past that to an implementation um, um, perspective where you're, you've got a plan, these are the resources that you will put to the plan to implement the policy, and who are our partners and stakeholders who will help us deliver on the policy, and in addition to that, who is our customer base, and what options do we have to deliver? To you know, And, and I assume that will involve community, a localised approach, comms in their languages, 
um, uh, um, you know, utilizing talent that is of Pacific descent because they understand the culture. I mean, again, this it's quite a, um, there's a systematic way of looking at it. And I just don't think it's, I don't think it's in the nature of MFAT to work that way because they are at the end of the day doing two things. And this is being very cynical of my former MFAT colleagues. They are doing two things in fact. One, they are managing their ministers, right? They, they, that's, they, they, they'll manage their ministers for the next three years, for the next cycle, until the next lot come through, right? And, and, and then the second thing is, is they'll do, they will protect the, um, um, uh, what is it, um, the priorities for New Zealand, because that's why they're called the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for New Zealand, right? As much as they say they're doing this because for the region, their job as a good public servant for this country is to serve the interests of this country, right? And that's not a bad thing. That, that isn't. But let's be honest about it, right? Let's be honest about that's what your job is. And then once you pass that that stage, you get into a, a much more authentic, honest conversation. Yeah. Fina, I can see you nodding. Oh, uh, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I just, um, just, just not having worked with foreign affairs, you know, in foreign affairs Tonga and meeting up with um, colleagues from foreign affairs New Zealand from MFAT and, um, you know, particularly around where we're happy to see each other when we're on the other side of the world and that's fantastic but when it really comes down to, to you know, it was really clear to me when it really comes down to policies and things like that, um, particularly on climate change issues before this government you know, it was it was really really clear that New Zealand, of course, was was voting within their their own interests, and and as Peter said, that's fine. Um, but let's just be real about um, you know whose priorities comes first, etc. Um, and you know, like I, I think just if people can just be real when we're coming to the tables, not just about what we're talking about, but also what what we can what we can endorse, you know. Because well, we can talk till the cows come home now and agree on all these wonderful things, go back to headquarters and it gets completely changed. And I knew that, but I just didn't want to blame myself, you know, like, or just wanted to be able to say, oh, sorry, it didn't get passed by headquarters or, or you know, like back at home, it, it didn't. Um, I just think things will just move so much faster. I do want to say that um, COVID has done so much for the localization agenda, much, much more than any of the aid sectors or any of the huge INGOs, because... Um, it forced that power seeding. It really forced agencies, the big humanitarian organizations to actually take a step back and take a back seat and let um, the local communities, the governments, the agencies on the ground actually do the work. Um, before COVID, the Pacific has and you know had and still has some of the most trained people in disaster management and um, disaster risk reduction, all of these sorts of things. They fly all over the world to train, um, you know, like our civil servants, our agencies on the ground. And then when a disaster comes on, we don't even give them a chance to practice it because we're on the first plane there on the ground going, right, what are we doing? I think we should do it this way and this and blah, 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 blah. You know, and so automatically, and because our people are a beautiful and generous people you know and they don't want to kind of reject your help that you've come for all of these sorts of things right so we, so I think COVID has been brilliant in terms of forcing people to you know I bet you the humanitarian sector was itching itching to get on those planes during disasters but not being able to being forced to, to actually stay grounded and let you know the people on the ground sort themselves out the way that they know how to, the way that they know best to. I think it's been brilliant for, for the localization agenda.
Oh, and look, we're hearing this um, uh, all the time from our partners, um, some of our Piango partners saying, you know, we wish COVID wasn't wasn't um, making people sick. And if it didn't, it'd be the best thing that's happened to the Pacific in a long time in terms of uh, uh, accelerating the localization agenda. And look, we did it in Cyclone Herald. We were only in lockdown, what, in March 2020, Cyclone hit in, I think, May. So within three months, we turned the whole model of humanitarian support and intervention on its head. It took three months. Who knew we could do it that quickly? Mm -hmm. And we could do the same with development, you know. So I thought just to end, the, end this up with going coming back to Tonga, um, of course, Tonga now is in semi-lockdown. We've got port workers isolating, so they can't even um, necessarily process stuff that's arriving on the ports, on the wharfs. What what is the what is the response? What are the next steps in the response? What's going to be needed next after this initial phase, um, Melino? What what does this look like for the next few months and the next year? As as I say, the we only focus on a short term approach. I think the the government and in, in um, overseas uh, partners then discuss the the medium long term because uh, some some of the uh, the shipment that we send but um, the second shipment that we sent, there were some uh, donated plow um, uh, boats was uh, donated by some of the wealthy New Zealanders. Um, they sent to Tonga because I think this part of the, the second phase. But it is, um, but Tonga is, is going to be a long uh, journey back to normality. And with COVID, it makes the whole thing complicated. And we pray that, the, that there's no cyclone that comes through Tonga because if that uh, cyclone will come, Will make the the current uh, environment even more more challenging. Fina, what what's uh, next in the response? What are the what are the priorities? Do you think are you hearing? Yeah, um, so definitely for us in terms of Caritas, um, we are already looking at um, recovery, and so in terms of the response that the response work that we're doing, we're going to be um, making sure that it's actually tied up to the longer term, that it's not just a kind of standalone response that is actually um, aligned to the five-year program that we have with, um, with Caritas Tonga, um, just so that we can get that sustainability um, going in the sector. I, th I think we also really, um, for us, it has really highlights the need for preposition stocks and really just the ways that we can help um, our partners on the ground to be able to respond as quickly as they can. And, and that is basically by, by making sure that they've got all the supplies that they've got, by making sure that they've got all the whatever, the training and, and things like that that they need. Um, so for us, it really is about continuing to capacity build and just um, support Caritas Tonga and the partners on the ground to just keep doing the fantastic work that they're, that they're doing. So much better than if any of us were to jump on a plane and fly over um, yeah, so, so for us, it really is about how do we keep them in that place to, to serve their communities best. Yeah, and keep on track, because just because we've had a disaster, it doesn't mean that, that your long-term goals and your long-term plan, just as it was in the earthquake in Christchurch, principle's no different. You've still got to think about Absolutely. the long term too, yeah. Um, Peter, and final question for you, really. I mean, how is it that the aid sector uh, and aid agencies can be useful outsiders? in the Pacific rather than right on the inside? Well, that's a big question. Um, nice of you to keep it to keep it last for me. 
Um, <laughs> look, there's, there's, they've, they've received plenty of advice, really good advice, really good comments from others. So, I mean, the information is out, out there. Um, what I would say is that the response and the next stage um, in terms of recovery and response, the first thing is it belongs to the kingdom of Tonga, right? So, you know, we can all talk about it at our organizations, but it belongs to the kingdom. And therefore, we wait and, and, and await to, you know, their view in terms of the next steps, you know, and they represent their people, the leaders um, of Tonga. And then we will, and then we respond and we, to their plan of recovery, to their plan of the next stage. And I think that's important because uh, um, I, think, I think it's a natural instinct for, again, outsiders to um, plan it for them, right? Um, when, when I think it's important to recognize that it belongs to the kingdom. Um, and, they would, and they will let us know in due course what the next stages are as they, as they have, you know, at every point. I think the second thing is, which is what the Tongan um, um, people and communities have been doing very well um, as an outsider, is that they're taking on, they're, it's really, COVID's really brought them a lot closer to, to, together because, um, you know, there were some challenges there. I mean, Milena, you know, you know full well, some challenges with, you know, um, you know, young people there, et cetera, and, you know, and some of the economic challenges that they had. But I think, again, it's just the part of in their nature and it's instinctive to the Tongan community that when a crisis happened and there's a cascading of, 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 of crisis um, occurring over, over the last couple of years, that, you know, the, the element of true kindness and authentic kindness, right, sits within the kingdom. So you can have politicians, you know, I'm not thinking of anyone at the moment, who can stand up at a podium and say, let's be kind, right? We, or you can have, we can have a, 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 a country and a kingdom who kindness comes instinctively to, to them and which is adapted through their, their love of God and love of their community. That is critical, right? Because that's authentic kindness and that's, that's real. That's the real stuff. Uh, we don't need a politician standing on a podium telling us to be kind, uh, I presume, in Tonga. They do it, they do it because it's in, the, it's in their blood. Yeah, yeah but I think kindness, kindness follows uh, through action, you know? Your action totally of agree. kindness, you know? Yeah, yeah, and um, any of us who've been to Mass or gone to church on Sunday, that's usually the message. It's all very well having, as you say, expressing the values, but it has to be followed by actions. So, um, well, Malo, everybody, I mean, that was a fantastic conversation. I'm really grateful to have had your insights, your personal experiences, um, your love of the Kingdom of Tonga and the people of Tonga, and um, this podcast you know, we want to get the message out to to our partners in Tonga that um, our support is is long term and uh, Aroha is long term. And you know, you are our Fanonga. We do have a, a shared Pacific identity, and and we are listening, and we and our support is is there um, beyond the initial response. So this has been a really valuable conversation. We'll keep having it. Um, and we'll keep talking about you know what what New Zealand can do best, whether whether it's government, whether it's the aid sector, or whether it's uh, business. So, um, kia ora everybody, and thank you again. And we'll we'll be talking to you soon. Hello, Peter. Hello, Peter. Hello. A big thank you to our guests. Finau, Peter and Melino. What a fantastic conversation and a great way to launch the series. It was provocative and a conversation we need to continue having. So a few key takeaways on how to be a useful outsider. We need to find ways to build more trust between governments, the aid sector, community groups and civil society. We've seen the value of locally led leadership and strengthening local capacities before disasters hit. 
Values are great, but they have to be demonstrated through action and current processes just aren't fit for purpose. How can we find better ways to work together? Thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders. Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.